Welcome to the Philia Podcasts. We are the daughters of those women who came before us. It is our absolute honour to have met so many incredible women fighting for the liberation of us all. Our role at Philia is to amplify the voices of those women via the Philia Conference and these podcasts. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. So hello everybody, um, my name is Sadia Hamid from the Council of Ex-Muslims of Britain um, and I am interviewing today uh, Zainab Ali Khan. Um, hello Zainab, thank you for joining us. Hi Sadia. So can you t- start off by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Um, Sadia, uh, basically my, my field is women and gender studies mm-hmm. and um, I did my master's from the University of Toronto a couple of years ago in women and gender studies. And then I returned to Pakistan to work for the development sector. I had worked uh, for for this sector even before my master's. And so I basically continued on that path. And uh, I have over 10 years of work experience working in this sector. And I mainly do projects on women's rights, women's empowerment, economic empowerment, so on and so forth. Brilliant. So like our professional background is the same, but it's much, much easier here for me in the UK. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what it's like working in Pakistan in the women's sector? Well, it has its challenges because, you know, oftentimes when we do work on projects, number one, specifically, you know, um, when they're projects for longer projects with longer durations, such as, you know, five years or seven years, most of these projects want mindset change within the country when it comes to women's rights. I think, you know, when when you're working to change the mindsets of people who have been thinking a certain way for generations, it takes longer than five to seven years to do that. I think that's one of the biggest hurdles working in the development sector and working for women's rights because uh, changing the way the thought patterns of people especially pertaining to the the beliefs that they hold about women and their Mm. rights is very challenging and then um, you know I mean oftentimes we make huge gains you know we we make we uh, make huge strides you know working on projects and we see that there, there is a mindset change going on. But oftentimes, you know, external factors really uh, negatively impact our work. For instance, supposing uh, the security situation in the, in the country goes, goes bad. So, yes. you know, a lot of those areas become inaccessible. A lot of provinces and cities become in, inaccessible because, because of security reasons. So that really hampers our work. So and then just working within the development sector, you know, there's a conservative side to it. There's a liberal side to it as well. And you get to meet people from all sorts of backgrounds. That itself is, is, a, is a great learning experience. But at the same time, it can be very challenging, especially for me, for a person like me, because I've lived abroad most of my life. Um, my father was in the foreign service, so I traveled most of my life. And then when I when I graduated, when I did my bachelor's, I, I did it from the University of Maine, uh, I decided to return home mm. and work here. And um, so I come from a very different mindset. You know, yes. uh, I have a very global view of women's rights, you know, mm. uh, but uh, you would you know, it'll be you'd be hard pressed to find many people working within the development sector over here who would be that liberal minded in Pakistan. Yes. 
you know yeah. um so um yeah i mean I, these, these are some of the challenges that i've come across working here and um uh you know i mean we live in a nation where you know even um getting basic rights for women such as the life to proper healthcare the right to life the right uh, to a proper education we're still fighting these battles of you course. know uh, that yeah. other countries have already overcome you know yeah. so when you when you work on women's rights in pakistan you're literally starting from the basics now it's actually relatively rare here in the uk to hear the the what was she wearing response to a woman being raped whereas in pakistan i'm pretty sure in fact i'm certain that's probably still going to be commonplace so your battles are much much harder there's just no comparison between the uk and pakistan in terms of you know the battle lines and where you are and the kind of struggles that you have in the sector the women sector has become quite easy in some cases in the uk if you say you're working in domestic abuse or sexual violence or around violence against women people just you know it's fine there's no questions it's not considered controversial and in pakistan i'm pretty certain it's still considered controversial it is it is and you know it's funny that you said that because you know when i decided you know women's rights had always been an area of interest for me and mm-hmm. i've always been very passionate about them because i myself i come from a conservative family i'm mm-hmm. the first female in woman in my father's side of the family to be given the opportunity to study abroad you know my 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 cousins and my sister and other women in my family were never given this opportunity because it was solely reserved for men it was like yeah. yeah your brothers and cousins are going to go abroad to study but why would you you're just going to get married and reproduce children so why yeah. do you need a formal education for that you know yeah. and i remember seeing my cousin and my brother uh, a lot of my cousins go abroad to study and you know everything was paid for by the parents and everything and when when it was my time and i really fought because i was a good student so you know i felt like no i should also have the right to be sent abroad yeah. and i remember my family said yeah sure if you want to you'll have to pay for it yourself because we're not going to foot the bill you yeah. know so i yeah, had yeah. to work 10 times harder than the men in my family to secure that fu- funding to secure the scholarships or financial aid and to actually get a bachelor's degree and then go on to do my masters and even after that when i when i decided to do my masters in women and gender studies my father was mortified he was horrified you know yeah. because he was like i'm you know you're going to spend all this money to get a d- degree on in in women's rights like it it, it was just he he couldn't understand it but now that he sees that i'm working in in this sector of course his mindset has changed yeah. but back then i'm talking like it nearly 10 years ago it was unheard of you know yeah and it's a bit of a battle with our parents and our family and our community largely as well isn't it my daddy my gran was exactly right. the same you know like uh parna likna ki where you're just going to go to you're just going to get married you're just going to have bachche so sorry uh, for our english listeners uh, so why do you need to study you're just going to get married you're just going to have kids what's the point in wasting all this time it's like common place in ta- inside pakistani households and the sad thing is for us pakistanis in britain 
our families yeah. come from Pakistan and they bring that mindset with them here. So uh, yeah. we did a podcast, actually, interestingly, uh, Zainab, with uh, Khatija Khan. She's a Pakistani that lives in Germany now. And she was saying that in Pakistan, something uh, something new had started happening where, you know, in Pakistani schools, they'd show images of girls here women and girls in the UK wearing hijab and, you know, being very, very modest. And they would say to the girls over there, look, they're more modest and they're better behaved than you are. And you have to be more uh, well behaved uh, than yeah. the w- women out there. They're living in a and they're behaving yeah. like this and you can't behave properly in a sh- country. You have to be better than them. So th- yeah. that was an interesting thing that was happening. This is your space too. This is your home that you're having yes. to be that cautious in your home. This is something that I don't understand why our mainstream society doesn't uh, they don't understand it this is your space too this is a shared space this isn't a space just for men to you know roam freely in you know and it's seeing such a conservative society shame because i mean the man who created this country muhammad ali jinnah you know i mean uh, he was he was as liberal as they come you know and he was so pro women's rights. I mean, his right hand, his 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 um, the biggest confidant that he had throughout his life was his sister Fatma Jinnah. She was his counselor. She was his sister. She was his friend. And those are the principles that this this country was founded on: equal rights for men and women. Yes. You know, so they could they could play an active part in society. And I think we've just come so far away from that uh, it's uh, it's very worrying and yeah. the only segment of society that that is time and again thrown under the bus are the women of because they, only their rights are usurped no, no man loses his rights we we lose the 10 15 gains that we've made by uh, you know every year we lose a little mm-hmm. more you know on that note can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the Every Every Woman Coalition is? Sure, of course. So uh, we, we are known as the Every Woman Treaty now. Right. And uh, we are an NGO. And we are consisting of women's rights activists and um, scholars and organizations in 128 countries around the world. Uh, we were very careful um, to include women in people who are already working on the front lines to end or to curb violence against women and girls. So all the members of our uh, of our coalition are actually women who are already working on women's issues in their respective countries. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop a treaty to end violence against women and girls all over the world. Mm. So why did you create the Every Woman Treaty? Well, Sadia, you know, we created the treaty because there is a dire need to to curb the rise of violence against women and girls all over the world. Mm. According to the World Health Organization, one in three women suffer from violence at some point in their lives. Yeah. That amounts to 35% women all mm. over the world. Mm. That's, that's 1.3 billion women who suffer mm. from violence at some point in their lives. Mm. You know, so obviously there is a dire need for a standalone treaty 
that has strong language and mm. has measures that get governments to take concrete action to end violence against women and girls in their countries. Mm. So the UN already, uh, the UN has other treaties such as CEDAW uh, that aim to protect women against violence. Why do you think another treaty is necessary? Why not implement what already exists? Right. You know, um, I, I, I get this question from a lot of people. And yeah, you're correct. The UN has CEDAW. And there are a number of other regional treaties as well, such as the Istanbul Convention. You have the Beijing Platform, so on and mm. so forth. Specifically, I want to talk about CEDAW because a lot of people quote this as an example. And yes, mm-hmm. CEDAW in its day did make gains. And, and they did, you know, they, as far as women's rights were concerned, and, um, you know, it was the treaty to go to. But yeah. what I think a lot of people don't realize is that, number one, CEDAW in its treaty, not once does it mention the word violence. Wow. Okay. I okay. didn't know that. Not once. And this is, mm-hmm. these, this is why I wanted to focus on this, because these are important points that, you know, people generally who, uh, who know about CEDAW are not aware of. Yeah. The word violence was taken out during the time of drafting the committee as violence against women was seen as a private matter that the state really? should not that should not uh, that the state should not um, sort of interfere in you know wow. so the word violence was taken out now what cedo does is it has a list of recommendations general mm-hmm. recommendations that it makes to nations or uh, signatory nations okay and there are two recommendations in CEDAW, number 19 and number 35, that recommend that nations should report on violence against women. But mm. those are just that. They are just recommendations, right? Yeah. No state has to uh, comply by them because there are no, there, there are no measures in place. Uh, there, are mm. no, there are no repercussions for states who do not sort exactly. of uh, report on violence against women. Mm. And... CEDAW is not a binding, legally binding treaty as far as violence and against women is concerned. It is only a binding treaty when it comes to discrimination. It is not a binding treaty when it comes to violence against women. Sorry, the interesting thing there, though, is although uh, it's, it's binding when it comes to discrimination, they still allow some of the worst uh, abusers of human rights and women's rights a seat at the table of the General Assembly. They still allow them a voice. They still work with them. They don't. The United Nations is like the most useless body because it actually does nothing. They sit together, take big, big salaries, and they don't actually, They do, there's no... It's all well and good creating these treaties, but if there's no implementation, if there's no enforcement, if there's no sanctions or repercussions for not uh, adopting some of the the most basic ideals that they have, then they they seem like a pretty useless body. I think, you know, back in the day when CEDAW was was introduced, it Mm. was was groundbreaking. You know, mm-hmm. because for the first time, it, uh, the world recognized, yes, there is discrimination against women and other marginalized groups, you know, and something needs to be done about it. But now we are in 2019. And although mm-hmm. CEDAW has made certain gains as far as discrimination is concerned, we have to realize that 
CEDAW has been unable to curb the rise of violence against women and girls. And yeah. that is why, you know, we need a separate standalone treaty for that now. You yeah. know, a treaty that, can, that actually um, has, has a scorecard, you know, mm. that, that can score nations on, on whether they have taken measures to sort of end violence against women and girls in their countries. And I'll, I'll get into that later on. I mean, there are five sort of initiatives that uh, we want, you know, nations will be agreeing to when they sign the Every Woman Treaty. And I'll talk about that some more later on. Sure. So just a, a, obviously, we have seen a rise in violence against women all around the world. You know, that statistically, it, there used to be two women a week murdered in domestic homicides in the UK every year. In the last couple of years, that rose to three women a week being murdered by their, you know, husbands, spouses, partners, yeah, etc. others. Yeah. 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 So what would you what do you think is contributing to this spike in violence against women? I think, number one, that there, there's, you know, the treaties that exist, whether they are regional treaties or whether it's CEDAW, there mm. is this uh, inability of nations. And, and I, I don't feel they feel the need to implement these treaties and bring about change in their countries, you know. Yeah. And, and, and in a lot of these, uh, what, what I've seen living in Pakistan, at least, that there is a plethora of laws to mm. protect women and girls, you know. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised at how many laws in just in the past decade we have introduced in Pakistan. There's a law on domestic violence. There's a law on early marriage. There's a law on acid violence. There is a law on sexual harassment. You mm. name it, we have it, right? The problem is implementation. Yes. If there are laws over there uh, in your countries that are not being implemented by the judiciary, that are not being implemented by the government, that lawyers and judges are unaware of because they have not been trained on these new laws, then that poses a serious, uh, you know, obviously when, when there's violence against women and there's no punishment for them and there's no repercussion for, mm. for people, perpetrators then obviously it's going to be on the rise right so that's interesting because in the UK we have we have got laws against sexual violence and different variations of sexual violence so you know from harassment all the way through to uh, penetrative rape we don't actually have a specific law for domestic abuse what we have is uh, laws against like crimes against the person, so like ABH, actual bodily harm, grievous bodily harm. Those are the laws that are used, but we don't actually have a specific law of domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised because, because, you know, when we talk about, when we speak of domestic violence as being seen as a private matter, that is mm. not the business of the state. We, um, at least for me, you know, I instinctively think, oh, countries like Pakistan or India or South, South Asian countries, you know. Mm -hmm. But actually, uh, this is true for a lot of Western nations as well, like the UK, like, like USA, like America. Yeah. I mean, in yeah. the 80s, I think even, even, the, even the US did not really have laws against domestic violence. You know, I yeah. mean, if, if, if a woman did suffer domestic violence um, and mm. you call the cops, there, there wasn't much they could do. No, know? 1991 that we made rape within a marriage uh, and a, a criminal offence. So that was, you know, in our exactly. lifetime. 
So, yes, and that's uh, the still, case in Pakistan, actually. Marital rape is not recognized as rape. Yes. Because, yes. you know, if, you're, if you get married, then your husband, uh, you are his property, basically. Yeah. Right? And he has um, the right to do with you uh, whatever he pleases. Where yeah. even even raping you, which is um, you know because because, then the because state, he's been given right to 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 uh, to have sexual relations with you, uh, whether you want them or not, you know. And that's the problem, isn't it? This is when this is a a problem when religion interferes in matters of the state. The state no longer then safeguards against the person uh, as it should do. In Pakistan, yeah. women are going to be stuck where they are because they're always going to be seen as the maintainers and creators of labor in our households and the sustainers yeah. of, you know, uh, of, uh, of the family rather than inde- independent individuals within that household like the men are individuals in their own right who have their own identities that are that are separate from being a mother and a wife and a daughter and a sister and a niece yeah you know so on that note how do um how do you lobby countries and lawmakers to ensure they have laws to protect against violence against women and girls so this is something that we we are going to be building uh, that we have built into the treaty and um, uh, earlier on, I spoke of the five interventions that yes. uh, we have included in our treaty. So um, the first one is legal reforms. So uh, when a country signs on to the Every Woman Treaty, they are agreeing to not only stop harmful, uh, to sort of do away with harmful legislation pertaining to women and mm. harmful practices, they are also signing on to agree to look at existing laws pertaining to women, finding mm. the gap within those laws and doing something about them, right? Yeah. Then yeah. we are also, we are, we're also demanding the training and accountability of judges, of police officers, of doctors, nurses, and any other individual or institution that comes mm. into contact with women who have suffered violence, right? Uh, so we yeah. want people trained and we want them to be held accountable, mm. right? And the third thing that we are asking for is the introduction of um, uh, programs and campaigns that educate the masses on pre- uh, uh, violence prevention. We're also asking for uh, survivor support systems to, to be uh, built in these yeah. nations because you know a lot of times when women suffer violence especially when it is at the hands of a family member whether it be the brother the father the husband the son mm. these women um, when they do muster up the courage to go public with their experiences they are shunned by their family members yes okay yes overnight you you lose your family your home your support system Overnight, you have nothing. Okay. Yes. yes. So there has to be a, rec- a real recognition that these women fall through the cracks, you know, yeah. and and they should be uh, these women should should be championed in our society, right? Because there it takes a lot of courage to sort of stand up uh, in a male-dominated society and sort of talk about the abuse that you have encountered. And and, yeah. uh, and encountered at the hands of people you loved 
and trusted with your life right yeah. so there has to there have to be programs and services that rehabilitate these women mm. teach them skills sort of um uh, you know so that they can become economically empowered mm. hopefully you know and rejoin society as active members you know active contributing members of society exactly. and the fifth thing that we are asking for is allocation of funding all of these interventions that i just mentioned all four of them require mm. money yeah right nothing can be done without funding so yeah. whatever nations uh, uh, sign on this uh, signs the every woman treaty they will have to they uh, they're basically agreeing to implement these five interventions yeah so it's interesting in britain every single government department gets more money including road works get more money than violence against women and girls think of anything any department any government department they all get more money than violence against women and uh, women and girls so they're really really not doing enough but i do think also if you don't mind me saying there's something else that i think that's really really important that our governments are failing in catastrophically um which is prevention and early detection i think what that would probably feed into is the education and awareness element of what you're talking yes. about but yes. that requires a hell of a lot of funding and no government is willing to do it they will give a very small pathetic amount of money to the firefighters who are on the front lines working with women in domestic abuse yeah. and sexual violence in this country right. but yes. that changes nothing because then it's yeah. too late well if you're so worried allow them the education and awareness yeah. to protect themselves precisely they must and you know this is i i, I wish they would understand that they are empowering their women to better mm. protect themselves you yeah. know keeping girls and young young girls in the dark about these issues is not the solution no. um because because that makes them fall prey to to these things far easily far more easily because they don't know what they've walked into and they I don't think know they safe they don't know how to say no you yes. know they, they they don't know that okay i i this situation is dangerous i should not be in it you know yes. they, they don't know how to reach out for help exactly. you know because they have not taught those uh, 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 tactics and also this is empowering for those parents that are worried for their daughters the moment they know that their daughters know how to protect themselves how to safeguard themselves to recognize abuse well they don't have to worry about their daughters anymore because their daughters can take care of themselves it's also freeing for those uh, those parents uh, and it also is a big uh, it's a kickback against those perpetrators when the women are empowered for themselves because the women can then them then say to the perpetrators themselves no this isn't happening i know how to look after myself i can see you're a perpetrator right um because they know the signs they know what signs to look out for and yeah. um a lot of times you know it's i mean we think that the perpetrator is going to be outside the house but mm. the perpetrator may be in the very house that you see, uh, that you feel that you think is protecting your child exactly. you know exactly exactly um, so yeah it's very it's very uh, important to teach uh, i think boys and girls you know uh, yeah. when it comes to this sort of thing uh, about how to uh, be safe yeah. you know how to be communicative with with uh, with uh, their parents regarding such issues 
Exactly. Because parents exactly. are not going to be around forever to protect their children, right? At some point, you will have to send your children out into the real world. They can't live with, uh, within the four walls of your house forever and, and stand up for themselves. Exactly. If your children aren't prepared to stand up for themselves, prepared to take care of themselves, then actually you've done a bad job as a parent. By not allowing them this education, by not giving them, because there's certain things that you learn at school that you're never really going to need, if if we're honest, right? But there's things at school that you should be taught that you're definitely 100% going to need. Healthy relationships, sex and consent are the most basic things that you're going to need every single day of your life. Right. So that's something that you're taking away from your children. That is that is a form of abuse in itself. Exactly. Yeah. That's neglect. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Zenobjan, uh, what yes. would you like to say uh, to our listeners or, or like to ask from our listeners? How can they help? How can they get involved? Is there any message that you would like to give to them? Yes, definitely. Um, Sadia, what, um, you know, uh, to date, we have had about 6,000 individuals from uh, 150 countries all over the world who have mm. visited our website and have signed the, uh, the Every Woman Treaty. Mm. So what we want is uh, we want more people to visit the website, read the treaty and sign it. So I'd yep. urge all listeners to sort of log on to www.everywoman.org, read the mm. treaty and sign it. You know, it's going, to make, it's going to make a safer world for women and girls all over. And it'll only take two minutes out of your day. So please yeah. at least do do log on and do sign the treaty. And by signing uh, the treaty, do you get like email bulletins or like do we get updates about your work on a regular basis? We have a Facebook page as well. You can follow us on Facebook and uh, you just type in uh, every woman treaty and it will come up. The page will come up. And uh, yes, uh, uh, basically we'll have your email so you can sign up for updates um, um, from the Every Woman Treaty. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Zainab. That was lov- it was lovely speaking to you. Right. No, thank you so much for this opportunity, Sadia. Really, it's been great. Thank really you. Really appreciate it.